Hello, welcome to the Future Proof podcast from the north of England with Sarah Hall and Stephen Waddington. We'll be talking about what's hot and what's not on the internet in marketing, the media and public relations. Hello, we're back with Future Proof, the podcast. It's been a while. I'm sat with Sarah Hall. We're going to talk a few things PR, the future of communications, a bit about fake news, a bit about Trump, some stuff we've got coming up. Um, plenty to talk about, right? There's loads today, so we're going to have to crack on. First thing I wanted to pick up on is a couple of stories from um, last week. Uh, first one, the post by McDonald's on Twitter uh, of a very, well, abusive uh, tweet um, levelled at President Trump. Uh, it was out there for 20 or 30 minutes. Did you see this? Yeah, I saw this story. Um, quite good fun. Obviously went viral. Um, I would say for all the wrong reasons, but for all the right reasons too. But um, interesting in terms of how that, that organisation has handled the crisis. Well, is it a crisis? Well, how would it not be a crisis? They've had to take a position in terms of where the, what their political bent is, really. So, so they wound it back within... 20 or 30 minutes uh, and claim that their account had been hacked. That's right. But it's interesting because it's back to this discussion in terms of what do you do when you're advising, especially this kind of size of brand in terms of do you have a a political stance or are you apolitical? Because you look at what's happened with, um, for example, Starbucks, where they came out and said, we can't stand by uh, while the work that Trump is doing is happening. Or do you do what Uber's done and be very... I don't know, entrepreneurial about different things and jump on the back of, for example, the New York taxi strikes. That's an old, that's a euphemism, uh, if I've ever heard one. So um, <laughs> in this case, um, McDonald's haven't taken a position. Haven't taken a position. Um, it hasn't put me off Big Macs in any way whatsoever. Uh, and they've said very clearly uh, we were hacked. Um, well, they've benefited from it, really. I mean, you think about the exposure they've had and they've managed to, it looks like, smooth it over with with Trump. They're, bearing in mind that didn't they support Trump in, in the early days? I don't know. I don't sure. know. There's, a, there's an interesting uh, point there for anyone that manages a, um, a social media account there around security um, that you should really be using two-factor authentication so that you require a password and then some other means of authentication, like a mobile phone um, or some other secondary device, makes it much more difficult to, to hack an account. But not just that, and I think there's a piece in, I think it's Future Proof 1, could be 2, by Nathaniel Cassidy, and he wrote about we've how... We've been in three, we've been talking three minutes. <laughs> been talking three minutes. I know I'm allowed to do a plug, that's fair enough. first plug for the book. But he, um, he talks about how management teams should have all the security passwords, because often they don't, they trust their, their media teams to, to do whatever, the digital teams, and actually you should, really should have an oversight of that, so you can get in and shut it down yeah, as so, soon as so possible. It, for sure, um, any risk register, any risk register any decent workflow should have coverage of social media accounts, how the passwords are managed, and uh, who who has ownership of them. Surprising uh, how frequently that's bypassed that. Yeah, well, because uh, in most organisations, it's, it's typically the comms team. Well, it can be anyone in the organisation that sets up the account in the first instance. Uh, and then before long, um, you know, it, uh, it becomes established as a part of workflow, but the processes aren't put in place. 
Uh, we've been joined again by Madge. Hello, Madge. Hi, Madge. Madge, Sarah's dog. We had that footprint on the wooden floor, sorry. It's uh, just wandered into the studio. Um, Trump on Twitter, he continues, doesn't he, to um, to use Twitter as a primary means of communication to disintermediate all forms of media, including his own comms team. Yeah, propaganda, though, mainly, isn't it, in terms of... Well, it's... Well, there's no there's no attempt at engagement, in you know, best practice in the way we'd know it, no. I think also it's just, uh, it's interesting in terms of he has his own reality. I think that's very, very clear. And so he means whatever he tweets at every, any given point in time, I, I often think. Um, so, you know, so it does come across as very authentic. But he's now being showing up. As time goes on, you can see the difference between, you know, him as the showman and the businessman versus the genuine politicians who understand what they're doing. <laughs> you hear the dog toy, sorry. We're going to have to take that toy off the door. I'll get it. Uh, right, I wanted to move on and talk about uh, a brilliant piece uh, that was written by Tim Berners-Lee, uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the internet 28 years ago. He wrote this on the anniversary, uh, an op-ed in The Guardian. Uh, and he pulled out three points that he thought were broken with um, with the internet. Sarah's still trying to wrestle this squeaky <laughs> toy off, off the dog. Um, he broke out three points that, that were broken. The first one is the loss of control around personal data. Um, you know, we're all... Uh, we're, we're all accessing free services around the internet. Um, the cost of access, which is our personal data. I just don't think we heed it at all. I know I personally don't, so I'll quite happily sign up to something because it seems to me that that's a, a fair exchange. But then, you know, a lot of people... I think the retargeting of adverts is quite an interesting one because people start to get freaked when that happens to them. So, you know, you've Googled wellies or something on the internet and then all of a sudden you serve with an advert for them when you get back on Facebook. Mm. I think that kind of thing has started to uh, raise people's awareness but generally we don't think about it at all and the implications of, of what we're giving away. So, so Tim's point was um, the data isn't shared openly, it's, it's it contained in silos uh, around the internet, silos that are, that are protected by wall gardens. Um, so citing well he doesn't actually name them but citing um i would cite twitter and facebook as examples of that there's a really you know to your point there about um occurrences around the internet that make you aware of the amount of data you have i found a great tool recently called finder um yeah this is a bit freaky this. turned up on product hunt so Finder's a a, a reverse search engine that will find social media accounts based on an individual's email address. Not only that, it will then scrape those accounts for public information. Um, one of the features of the tool is it will find the last location where you were. So you yeah. rang me, didn't you, and told me what I was doing and where I was, and I was like, uh... Yeah, it's slightly <laughs> uncomfortable. Based on the data, metadata scraped either from a public Facebook post. Actually, you locked down your Facebook, don't you? It must have been from a, a Twitter. Uh, the, the location data from a Twitter, but it, uh, you know, breaks that data down to a postcode level. So, uh, so, so yeah, that's spooky. spooky. First thing, well, it's spooky. It's, it's the reality. It's the first thing, though, that that Sir Tim says um, we um, we should be concerned about. The second one is um, the spread of misinformation. Uh, 
fake um, news fake news on the alternative on the internet. facts he doesn't call it that but he does say uh, he does actually he does call it misinformation or fake news he does say um, what's happened now because of networks and, and explains this very eloquently is that a fact can go halfway around the world on the internet and back again um, well it's interesting isn't in it moments because it's you know go back to that analysis by BuzzFeed News and they said that um, the top fake US election news stories generated more total engagement on Facebook than the top US election stories and that was from I think that was taken from 19 major news outlets combined so that's right. pretty frightening when you think about it yeah you know the the, the the thing about Facebook is if a person in your network who you trust shares a piece of content, that's a signal then to you um, that um, that content has veracity uh, and um, you know it's worth taking note of. Facebook takes a notice of that as well. Uh, and, well, they're and starting to put things into place, yeah. I mean, they're now doing, they've got readers and third-party fact-checkers now verifying content. It's interesting, actually, because the media is still trying to work out how best to, to solve this issue. Channel 4 did a great video, um, which helps people identify fake news, just gives them mm. top tips for what to look for. And then you've got newspaper teams, it's quite interesting, where you've got different um, titles um, from different publishers across different countries working together to work out how they can research topics and share expertise. Mm. So, you know, effectively creating a library and back catalogue of information, which is fantastic. And of course, across here, we've got the uh, UK Parliament who've got this investigation ongoing on, led by Matt Hancock, who's um, Minister of State for Digital and Culture Policy. And they've got ongoing roundtable discussions, but it's, it's still quite hard. We're still quite it's far away from dealing from a with solution. it properly. I, yeah. I, I think it's the technology has to have its play and um, I think also you know individuals need a greater education and critical thinking I well, think we are practitioners we've all got res responsibility for this right so in terms of validating information making sure we substantiate claims and attribution in terms of what are our sources where they're from and making sure that they're, they're plain to see you know mm. we've got to do that and it plays to the industry body's code of conduct yeah. uh, the final point uh, sort of related to ethics as well that Sir Tim says is we need greater transparency around he actually says political advertising but I'd extend this and say we need greater transparency around all forms of advertising especially with the rise um, of uh, influencers as a, as a form of media um, around brand, brand forms of communication um, so he makes the point that it wasn't possible during the US elections to, to tell where um, a piece of content was being served from. It wasn't able to, you weren't able to tell what the allegiance was. And you know, this is an issue that the ASA's looked at in the UK um, and, and recently published um, guidance for, for marketeers on um, f mainly advertising led around paid media. but. You know, its point is that if you're going to pay an influencer to align with your brand, then you know that needs needs to be absolutely clearly stated in any content that's shared around the internet. Absolutely, but no one's really got their teeth into that yet. No, I, I, I think we'll continue to see, in the brand instance, cases of brand called out and shamed uh, by authorities like the ASA uh, in the UK and in politically. Um, in political campaigning, you know, it's something that needs to be addressed in, in 
the terms of conditions for any but again, election. again, you know, as practitioners, we all need to do that too in terms of if we're sharing something from our employer or from uh, one of our clients, it's about due diligence and making sure that, you know, that that link is very clear. Yeah, yeah. You know, simple as a hashtag with a client on, for example, yeah. on a tweet. Yeah. How do, so how do you, how do you uh, mark up content that is sponsored? Yeah, hashtag hashtag yeah, sponsored, yeah, hashtag client, absolutely. hashtag ad. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's a bit like the P that you see on TV on Combination Street. <laughs> Thanks for that cultural insight. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on. Um, let's talk about measurement uh, in public relations. Uh, I caused a bit of a fuss. You with did, a, didn't you? With an Nothing art, new there, then. A blog I wrote. <laughs> um, actually, it was a build on a, a story by um, Richard Bagnall wrote in the first version of Future Proof or the second one about the Amec framework? Number one. Number one, okay. Uh, so Richard is now uh, the chairman of, Chair, yeah, of, of Amec. Of He's leading that organization. Uh, I did, wrote a primer, which you can go and find on my blog, um, based on a couple of points. So the first one was um, Amec's own data saying 20% of the industry still uses AVE. Uh, that was on the back of a, a piece of data that the PRCA published, uh, the Public Relations Communication Association published uh, in the UK that said around a third of its members are still using uh, using AVE. And I really scratched under that number to try and work out what what we can do as a profession, not just practitioners, but to 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 banish AVE because we seem to have been having this conversation for about ten Forever. years. Forever and ever, Forever, right? Yeah. Yet there are still, you know, people measuring the size of clips and calculating what the Bendles. equivalent val the equivalent advertising value will be, applying some vague multiple because of course two point five or five depending on how you're feeling. Well <laughs> it's editorial's more important than more influential obviously than advertising. And the, you know, the whole thing is bogus. Um so one of the points I made was yes, within if you look at the supply chain, there's a hell of a lot of work being done by Amec to educate uh, clients, to educate agencies uh, through the supply chain. But then if you look at the vendor community, they're still providing uh, AVEs along with their measurement monitoring reports uh, as a standard metric, uh, and I think that needs to stop. Um, well, what's fascinating about it is I understand that they don't want to lose business, but equally they could take a real leadership position and help help us educate the um, you know employers in the business community about the value of PR and actually how you can measure it and how that works against organisational um, objectives and outcomes. And so mm. it makes no sense to me in terms of I think it's just there's a fear factor there that is stopping it, or they really haven't just considered it because they're doing more of what they've always done. Yeah. Um, because people are still buying it, which is not the way to innovate, as we know. Um, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, it's not just down to them. I mean, as practitioners, we should be having that conversation with the management team. And also, it comes back to this old, you know, soapbox thing of mine about, you know, the, the courses that uh, MDs and FDs go on, where they're taught a tiny bit about PR, which is usually that, you know, we're there for media relations and crisis comms, and not much else. And this, this should form part of what they're learning when you go on those, you know, those business qualifications hmm. you know okay what is PR how does it add organizational value and how do you measure it what should you be looking for from your from your practitioner and from that department so how do you how do you do measurement we follow of course the AMEC framework I couldn't possibly say anything else <laughs> no but it's good because it actually takes into you know if you use PESO which we do it, it uses that and it factors it all in and it's you know very simply 
beautifully um, put together tool and it's free what's not to yeah. love yeah it's a really really good powerful tool um, related story about skills and upskilling um, uh, the profession I wanted to talk a little bit about the Global Alliance um, competency framework uh, it's a piece of work been going on under uh, Dr. Joanna Folks yeah. and Professor Anne Gregory up at Huddersfield uh, to develop the competency framework into a series of, of skills and matrices uh, and embed that into practice and teaching and training. Um, the, the team up at Huddersfield has just finished a, a round of expert interviews by disclosure. I contributed to those uh, amongst a bunch of prof practitioners um, around the UK. And they've put out a call to um, to practice for, for people to contribute to a, now a crowdsourced uh, testing of, of some of the work that they've done. Um, so in the show notes, we'll, we'll include that. That was, a, again, that was a topic of, of one of the Future Proof books, wasn't it? Absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, it's such a good bringing it back to individuals and what we can do in terms of our own professional development. That framework is um, superb and it's, it's suitable whether you're starting out in your career, uh, your midway or senior practitioner because it, it sets out very clearly the skills that you need and it's not just about being tactically competent which we've talked about and which is the whole ethos behind Future Proof but about you know making sure that you have got business and finance and consultancy skills because actually that's what we need and that's what we also need if you, if you look at the threat from automation yeah yeah so good really good piece of work that's going on uh here in the uk to to create a, a worldwide worldwide framework and it's good um, to say i mean i should also say you know the cipr is working really hard to align its training and calls offer against that so you know there's a great team working on that as we speak so that will make things easier in time as well good good um let's uh talk about the cipr and the state of pr uh, profession report that was published I think in February yeah. uh, certainly since since we last spoke um, some of the headlines from that for you 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 blogged yeah. about gender yeah I mean obviously it talked a little bit about gender and mental health I think the main thing was that it was quite good to see I think the headline for me was that there was an uptake in CEOs and MDs looking to uh, PR practitioners for more strategic advice my main concern was that if you looked at what people as practitioners are buying from the CIPR in terms of their courses, that doesn't correlate in terms of the skill set. Um, so, you know, it's great that people want to be tactically confident and, you know, looking at writing for web or whatever it might be. I can't remember exactly what the, the courses that we're leading on were, but actually, you know, copywriting and stuff is an important skill, but we need to be thinking uh, strategically and, and getting the right management skills to, to back us up. You know, every time I see a report like this, I, I keep coming back to that quote from John White, which says that, you know, public, how long we're going to continue using this? Yeah, forever, as an probably. excuse for growing <laughs> up, though. But, uh, you know, John, Dr. John White famously says public relations is a young profession and, you know, it's inevitable that, that issues like this are going to arise. It's part of the maturing of, of the business. Um, the data point that I looked at, um, and I work quite hard on this. In fact, I didn't work quite that hard. I worked with a guy, uh, one of the um, comms managers from Corey from, from the CIPR, Corey. Uh, Cam goes shout out to you um, who helped me crunch the numbers and try and figure out whether there was an actual we could link um, education and training with 
the amount an individual earns remuneration. And we did. We found and claimed for the first time there was an absolute connection between a professional qualification, and we cast that fairly broadly. So a CI, CIPR, uh, CIM, or PRCA training, uh, or uh, you know other 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 re- relevant bodies. Um, and we found that um, at the outset of someone's career, um, you were likely to earn uh, over five thousand pounds more if you had a professional qualification than than if you didn't. And it's quite important as well because I mean it says that um, in terms of organisations looking and recruiting skills in leadership and strategic management and knowledge of current affairs as well as interpersonal skills are what they're after. Mm. That's really quite, you know, it's, it's quite telling in itself. Yeah, there's quite, there's Stuart Bruce to do a really good a blog about uh, skills and competency. Uh, you know, you're, you're right, it doesn't actually, it doesn't quite line up with, with um, what people are buying, but that was specifically with r- with regard to the CIPR, though. Yeah. So actually, there might be a bigger picture that we're not seeing. Yeah, and, you know, we're looking at those it, results in to, isolation. To John White's point, it's it's a business uh, that's a work in progress. Um, Mid career, you're earning, you're likely to be earning around um, two thousand pounds more than if you're formally trained than than your uh, counterparts. Um, so you know some some good news there, um, I, 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 but it's it's taking a long time to. Yeah. I think to, we're just very aware for, of it and we push hard on it, so we we look at that very very closely. I mean to come back to you know you talked about gender, um, obviously it talks about the fact that the pay gap persists and I think it's five thousand seven hundred eighty four pounds, and that's the discrepancy in favour of men, and it can only be attributed to gender when you take all the other factors mm. into play. Um, so obviously that's that's quite depressing, but then there's work ongoing there. And I think the thing that really gets me is the fact that, um, and this is very frustrating, is that it talks about in the in the actual state of the profession uh, results that the number of respondents say that um, it's quite a high number. I haven't got it in front of me, but they talk about diverse teams producing more effective campaigns, mm. which is great because it means that the message is seeping through. Because but when you look actually at the industry, we're still ninety one percent white. And I think it's 89% British, so there's so much work to do there. Um, so, you know, we've got a duty to represent the publics that we serve, so we all need to think about that as employers. All right. You're doing your bit as a female Geordie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to speak as slowly and clearly as one can. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> right. Um, that, sorry, we're making light of what's a very serious issue. I always point people to... Um, you know, to the work of the CIPR in this regard. The and the work Taylor of the, Bennett Foundation, yeah, superb. I mean, they're, they're leading the way here. They're, they're great. They're all campaigning and running projects uh, around, you know, to try and tackle this issue of uh, ethnic minorities in, in public relations, but also uh, socioeconomic background. Uh, background yeah, yeah, just as much so, an issue. So it's good. All right. Uh, mental well-being in in public relations. That was a nice segue on, <laughs> exactly. Uh, a slightly... um, we published a report, didn't we? A future proof published a report. How we dodged uh, recording a podcast at the time, I don't know. Um, but the headline from the report for me uh, was, or the, the interesting insight was, um, um, we had one person. We didn't, we spoke, I guess, to about one hundred and twenty people more than 100 people mm-hmm. practitioners uh about their attitudes to to mental health and how they were managed and how during their career um 
how during their career uh, they've been treated with regard to, to mental health and in fact how they've managed and worked with other people. Headline we found was actually received from, from one of the people we spoke to uh, um, um, a contract that stated one of the terms for breach of contract and therefore dismissal was mental illness. Which obviously breaks the law. Which breaks yeah. the law for in, in a number of regards, particularly around employment legislation. Um, but, you know, that's, that's where we're coming from. Um, the headline we found was, uh, sorry, the other headlines were um, that um, typically in smaller organisations, there's a low awareness of, of the impact of mental health and it's managed as a line management issue in larger organizations once you start to get a HR person or specialist health HR skills within a team or an organization then it's managed and as practically a, as managed it as well a lot of yeah. people have some proactive things in place whether that be yoga or mindfulness or they've got a counselor who's on site that people can talk to a lot mm. of people proactively deal with that it makes such a huge difference i mean of all the people we spoke to as well and from the counselor and different people and in industry bodies um um just being able to talk to someone frankly about the issues um without feeling that there's going to be blame or that's you're, you know there's going to be any kind of um stigma attached to you mm. seems to be you know a big way forward if we could get to that point um, but unfortunately people don't feel that they can share stuff because as um, I think it was Julia Fennick who talked about it from Bold Move Recruitment said you know often she gets people who comes to see her and say you know I wish it you know I wish it was like breaking a leg because you can just talk about it you can't just say actually I had three months off for depression even though you might be managing that perfectly well mm. and you might be able to recognize the symptoms and deal with those when they occur and obviously if you had a sy sympathetic employer at that point it probably wouldn't be an issue you'd work around that and it would be worth it to retain a skilled hire but across the board we don't seem to be able to achieve so Paul, Paul Sutton did yeah. a piece to camera didn't he yeah. and uh, Chris Owen we had you know some very two very brave so people so Paul's independent uh, practitioner specialising in digital and social comms uh, Chris is uh, director at MNC Saatchi uh, and both spoke uh, about issues with depression and, and uh, sorry issues with depression in, in Paul's case and then uh, alcoholism in Chris's case really and how they've managed that during during their career uh, and yes the very fact that they were um, it seemed to me the very fact that, that they were able to talk and share their story was as much and I think uh, part of the issue and the solution as anything else. Yeah, and I think there's responsibility on both individuals and organisations in terms of being able to spot and recognise when there is an issue and when perhaps someone is approaching burnout. Uh, and also just looking at, like I said, being proactive, whether you have occupational health or um, employee assistance programmes, um, things like that in place. Um, and we gave, I mean, what we'll do is again, we'll share this at the yeah, bottom the of the notes. notes. But um, in terms of if you're looking for help, uh, Mind have some great guides uh, online. Uh, NHS Choices do too. And Paul Sutton himself has, has developed quite a lot of uh, practical guidance around company culture and how you manage stress and presenteeism and your mental health. And of course, if you're an employer, similarly, there's plenty out there, you know, via Samaritans and Mind, but also um, an organisation called Business in the Community. So that we'll, leave, we'll make sure we leave that with you. Yeah, um, we should say thanks to the PRCA uh, who sponsored that piece of work and have done a, you know, been great. Really supportive about really it. Really supportive in, in sharing it through their networks uh, and with their communities. They're actually building a campaign off the back of it. 
um, this year to promote um, well-being within uh, within uh, the workplace within public relations. So, uh, big thanks there to to Francis Ingham and his team. Um, what have you got next for for Future Proof? So ongoing with number three. Sarah squirms Yeah, I'm shuffling. Um, do you know, I was doing very well just getting about it very quietly until Stephen tweeted. <laughs> no, but that's coming along well, we nicely. We had breakfast one day and you said, oh, I've just had an essay delivered for the third Future Proof. Yeah, I was still going to keep that quiet though. Okay. No, but it's coming along nicely, so I'm hoping in the next couple of months that uh, the next edition will be available for Can all Can you tease us with anything about it? No. Because it's a departure from what's gone before, isn't it? It's a media it? edition, and that's all I'm saying. It's a media edition. Yeah, you, okay. can, you can guess. Watch this. Keeping space. it secret. Watch this. Keeping it secret. How can you possibly keep it secret? We'll do when a viral buzz campaign beforehand. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Stephen will tweet. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's wrap up. Uh, things to watch out for in the couple of, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, what are you up to? What have you got on? Your um, CIPR president next year, surely that's keeping you busy. Yeah, there's loads to go out there. Well, obviously supporting Jason McKenzie as the current president's professionalism and recruitment drive uh, at the moment. So if you're not uh, logging your CPD or you're not a CIPR member, hurry on up, what are you waiting for? And then I'm busy planning for, actually what's nice about next year is it's the CIPR 70th anniversary. So we're looking at a year of celebration of the volunteer because actually the CIPR couldn't run without the volunteers mm. that make it tick. So we have a great management team um, and team at, at Russell Square, but often people um, interact most with their local committee uh, or sectoral group or national group, whatever it might be. Um, and so it's, it's right that they're formally recognised, so we're working on that. Uh, so that's that will kick that's off at the start of next year. Yeah, but we'll, we'll keep publishing uh, the plans for that so people can get involved. Um, and then I guess the other things coming up, well, we're uh, talking in, is it Belgrade, Croatia? Might yeah, in a couple of weeks. So, so the Croatian PR uh, Association Conference, uh, you're talking about, actually you're talking about Future Proof, aren't you? Yeah, the future of PR and uh, organisational value. Right, and I'm talking about, seven, what is it, 2017? 17 things for 2017 that we should be concerned about. How very social, Stephen. <laughs> Public relations. <laughs> and then we mustn't uh, forget to get your tickets to PR Fest. We're yeah. both speaking at it, so we have to declare that. But actually, the lineup looks really good. And um, it takes a lot of the thinking from Future Proof and it's really bringing it to life. Yeah, so, so well what done, Laura Sutherland. What, what are you doing there? Again, it's about organisational value. So I talked about um, you know what we should be doing as, as practitioners uh, last year and talked about very much about um, John White's work, bringing that to life a little bit. And I'm going to extend that and talk about, take it from a, a bit more of a management uh, perspective. It's, it's going to be well worth coming to, she says. Oh, well, I'm coming. <laughs> Good. I'll be there. You can clap. Um, uh, we should, uh, should say, yeah, that's 15th to 16th of June, June. isn't it, in yeah. Edinburgh. Laura's done a, Laura Sutherland, shout out to Laura. She's done an amazing job, actually, mm. building a community around that event. Um, it took place for the first time last year. Uh, Laura took all the risk herself to get that off the ground, um, attracted some to some sponsors, uh, and, and this year it's back bigger and better. Two days with some um, some fringe events. There's a women in PR event on. Yeah, the they're Eve. launching the, yeah. the night before, which is fantastic before. to see women in PR launch in Scotland. Uh, and then, um, yeah, a variety of speakers from across the profession. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, some workflow we've developed at Ketchum. In fact, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to try and run a live hack 
uh, to develop workflow for for managing influencer campaigns. And if, if it, it all doesn't goes work, wrong with PowerPoint, <laughs> yay! It, yeah, if it all goes wrong, I will roll out my cred deck. For, <laughs> for, or you could just dance. For, for catching influencer relations, I won't be dancing. <laughs> uh, so that's it. That's a wrap. We should do this more often. I've enjoyed that. Um, even even Madge's interruption at the front. Yeah, well, she's she's a good addition to the team. Yeah, she is. Okay, yeah. we'll uh, we'll be back. What in two weeks? Don't yes, like Stephen. Remember, do we? Yes, Stephen. Two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank uh, you. I'm going to hand over to um, Alfie Joey, uh, our mate from BBC Newcastle, to see us out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future Proof Podcast with Sarah Hall and Stephen Waddington. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at Hallmeister, that's H-A-L-L-M-E-I-S-T-E-R, and Stephen at Wads, W-A-D-D-S. For more information about Future Proof, visit futureproofingcoms.co.uk. Until next time, see you on the internet.